You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Pilferage is reported from Liquid's global altcoin warm wallets. CISA offers advice on reducing the risk of ransomware. The FCC is looking into the T-Mobile breach, and Moody's raises questions about the telco's risk management. China passes its own version of GDPR. The FTC refiles its monopoly complaint against Facebook. Caleb Barlow on third-party breach notifications and finding out if your information is being traded on the dark web. Rick Howard speaks with Hashtable member Zan Votrino about serving on boards. And the FBI warns that insiders can be recruited for industrial espionage. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 20th, 2021. The cryptocurrency exchange Liquid has disclosed that some of its warm wallets had been compromised. Security Week reports that the approximate equivalent of $97 million has been lost. Security firm Elliptic says that much of the theft, some $45 million, was of Ethereum tokens, which the thieves are currently in the process of converting to Ether before they can be frozen. As a precautionary measure, Liquid said it was moving funds to cold wallets. The exchange has offices in Singapore, Vietnam, and Japan, and it's licensed and regulated by the Japanese Financial Supervisory Authority. What's the difference between a warm and a cold wallet, you ask? A warm wallet is readily accessible, securely online, and is used for transfers, trading, and remittances. A cold wallet is stored offline and is less accessible. Cold wallets are generally regarded as more secure than warm ones. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, has this week issued guidelines for preventing ransomware attacks, protecting data at risk in such attacks, and responding to a ransomware incident should your organization fall victim. The guidelines could be applied by most organizations adapted to their particular circumstances, For prevention, CISA recommends that every organization maintain offline encrypted backups of data and regularly test your backups. 
Create, maintain, and exercise a basic cyber incident response plan, resiliency plan, and associated communications plan. Mitigate internet-facing vulnerabilities and misconfigurations to reduce risk of actors exploiting the attack surface. Reduce the risk of phishing emails from reaching users by enabling strong spam filters and implementing a cybersecurity user awareness and training program. And finally, practice good cyber hygiene by ensuring antivirus and anti-malware software and signatures are up to date. If you rely on managed service providers, CISA's got advice on how to reduce your risk there, too. TechCrunch reviews the cost of a ransomware attack as assessed by multiple sources and finds that the ransom payment itself, if any is even made, usually comes to less than 20% of the total. Labor, reputational damage, opportunity costs, and legal obligations make up the bulk of the bill. The Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. Federal Communications Commission has opened an inquiry into the T-Mobile breach, the first regulatory action in response to that incident. The FCC says it's coordinating with law enforcement. An FBI representative told the journal the Bureau was aware of the incident but declined further comment. Moody's Investors Service, the well-known investment rating firm, has issued a report on the T-Mobile breach, and while it hasn't announced a credit rating action, it does offer some comments on the telco's risk management. Quote, Despite the relative strength of the telecommunications sector as a whole, T-Mobile has faced cybersecurity challenges in recent years. In August 2018, T-Mobile said attackers gained access to the personal details of 2 million customers. That was followed in November 2019, when the company said it had discovered and shut down unauthorized access to the personal data of its customers. In March 2020, T-Mobile said attackers gained access to both its employees' and customers' data, including employee email accounts. While other U.S. mobile carriers have disclosed cyber incidents in recent years, none has done so as frequently as T-Mobile. The repeated incidents raise questions about T-Mobile's cyber risk governance and management practices. End quote. China has passed its long-anticipated data privacy law, the Personal Information Protection Law. It closely resembles, the Wall Street Journal says, the GDPR. It's likely to restrain corporate data collection, but is expected to have essentially no effect on government surveillance. CNBC sees the law as part of a general tightening of Beijing's regulation of the tech sector. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission has filed an amended version of its anti-competitive practices complaint against Facebook. The 80-page complaint is rich in historical detail, as is perhaps fitting for a revised complaint, whose original version a court rejected in June for insufficient evidence. The acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp form the core of the FTC's case that the company has engaged in impermissible monopolistic practices. The FTC maintains in its filing that Facebook has effectively been a monopoly since at least 2011. The filing says, in part, quote, Facebook has today and has maintained since 2011 a dominant share of the relevant market for U.S. personal social networking services, end quote. The complaint goes on to allege that user metrics provide sufficient evidence that Facebook has attained durable monopoly power in social networking services. Facebook, which has until October 4th to make its own legal response, understandably calls the FTC's case meritless. 
In particular, it objects to what it characterizes as the FTC's capricious efforts to rewrite settled legal decisions. Quote, There was no valid claim that Facebook was a monopolist, and that has not changed. Our acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp were reviewed and cleared many years ago, and our platform policies were lawful. The FTC's claims are an effort to rewrite antitrust laws and upend settled expectations of merger review, declaring to the business community that no sale is ever final. End quote. We note that Facebook has tweeted its response. Since the social network doesn't own Twitter, this seems a nice touch. Protocol has an account of FBI warnings to companies on the ways in which Chinese services pressure and compromise employees into stealing trade secrets. The account essentially advises businesses to create a version of the counterintelligence awareness programs, long familiar in the U.S. departments most concerned with espionage. It's not HR's job to catch spies, but maybe it's becoming one of the chief security officers. Even organizations whose mission is spy-catching stumble, as the FBI did with Robert Hansen, but a bit of sympathetic and well-constructed awareness training outlining the pressures that foreign intelligence services can bring to bear on even the upright, the competent, and the well-intentioned, and some reassurance that the concerns and worries employees might raise will meet a sympathetic and helpful reception. That might do some good. There's an old chestnut in counterintelligence training to the effect that the acronym MICE will help you remember why people become spies. That's MICE. M for money, I for ideology, C for compromise, and E for ego. Now, those can be and often are interpreted so elastically that one is tempted to shout, as one of our people heard a heckler yell at the last counterintelligence briefing he attended, Hell! Why does anybody do anything? But you get the point. The letter that's most important in the context of the FBI's warning to Silicon Valley is the C for compromise, treachery suborned by the threat of what might happen to the family, whether nuclear or extended, that the employee left behind. So let organizations be alert, but also sympathetic and helpful. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. On a recent CyberWire X episode about how security executives could pursue corporate board positions, I interviewed Suzanne Votorno, Zan to her friends. She is the president of Kilovolt Consulting, a U.S. Air Force Academy grad, and a retired major general of the United States Air Force with three decades of experience in space and cyber operations. She presently serves as director on several corporate boards like Wells Fargo and CSX, just to name two. During the interview, we got off on an extremely interesting tangent about what it's like to be a board member. We couldn't include it on the CyberWire X episode because it was too long. So we made it a standalone interview for our pro subscribers. And I have to say, it's fantastic. So we thought we'd provide a sample for our daily podcast audience. Can you give our listeners a sense of what it's like to work as a board director? You've been doing this stuff for a long time now. Give us the day-to-day I think the first thing to understand is that you're not in charge. So it's not like being a CEO or a CIO or a CTO where you direct people and your words are manna from the heavens and off they go to do your bidding. A board member is part of a body that is responsible for a strategic role in the company. They're responsible for the kinds of things that you would think of as advisory and also ensuring that there's succession planning and a future for the company, but it's one step removed, what used to be called kind of a graybeard's group, but with a very formal responsibility. So would you say it's a, you're more there to provide direction and not to dictate how things should be going? Is that, is that a fair way to characterize that? Exactly. And ask the right questions and dig deeper and help them dig deeper as management based on your collective experiences. Think of it that there's a phrase that they talk to board members about nose in, fingers out. (laughs) I love that. Because you are not management. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. And, And occasionally your wrists get in a little bit because there's a specific thing going on. But generally speaking, You are one step removed, which allows you to look at the bigger picture, help to see around the corners, and bring a diverse set of expertise, not just yours, but the entire group. So when you ask about workload, um, think of it a little bit like when you were going to the university, where for every class you go to, you're probably going to spend two or three hours studying the materials before you go. About a week or a week and a half before the meetings... You go through all the materials, and the intent is to come so prepared that no one has to brief you the charts or tell you what they sent you. You can now have a conversation with the other board members and with management about the materials they provided, and maybe even where you can share past experiences. But it is a conversation. Matter of fact, if someone comes to the board and reads you the charts, there's kind of a backlash because Board members come prepared, and they want to have the deeper discussion. 
that's the first part. Uh, the second part is that it is very scripted in the sense that there are certain things the board is absolutely responsible for. So each quarter, as the company puts out the 10Q, the audit committee and the board is going to be very intensely focused on the numbers, on the audit of those numbers by external, by the work by internal audit. And then you go into a number of governance matters in terms of how is the company running? How are you moving forward? How are you looking at it from an external perspective? And certainly compensation and professional development and succession planning are always on the table. And then either regularly or at a singular meeting each year, depending on which board, there's going to be a very deep strategy discussion that involves the baseline assumptions that management is working with and the strategy that they want to move forward for the next year or five years that becomes a very key discussion for the board. Every meeting after that is measuring how are we moving along that strategy or do we need to make adjustments? Is there some, in our military terms, branch and sequel that we need to adjust to or on-ramp and off-ramp based on something that's externally changing or internally changing? That's San Voterno, a regular visitor to the CyberWire hash table. You can hear my interview with her about how security executives can become board members on the CyberWire X podcast. And you can listen to my complete interview with her about what it's like to be a board member on the pro side of the CyberWire service. You can find both interviews at the CyberWire.com website. And we'd like to thank Zan for being on the show. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. Caleb, it's always great to have you back. Um, I want to touch base with you today on third-party breach notifications. I think we've seen some some shifts in that realm, and I was curious what you and your team are tracking there. Well, Dave, if you went back five or ten years, you know, and you'd be doing security research and you'd find victims, you know, not that you get excited there were victims, but, you you know, your team got together and said, all right, we've got to notify these victims. We've got to get on it. You get people on the phone. You try to call them up and go, hey— I'm so-and-so, you've been breached, and they'd say, thank you, and you give them the information, the IOCs, and you try to protect the good guys. Not anymore. <laughs> Everybody's no? done with that. Well, I mean, here's the problem, right? Doing breach notification now is really hard. People don't know how to take this inbound ingest. You know, sometimes they're, you know, they come up with a legal front of who are you, why are you telling me this, you know, kind of denial, denial, denial. 
in, in a lot of cases, it's almost impossible to track down who do you even notify at a company. It's to the point now where we're seeing large companies actually ignore victim data in their research, purposefully not crack it open because they're worried somewhere in their contracts they might have a requirement to notify their customers. We're even seeing this with law enforcement to a certain degree where you know, law enforcement may come across dark web research. Nobody's running to notify victims anymore. And I think this hmm. is a real sea change in what we've seen because it's too much work and it's too hard to get a hold of people. And frankly, even when you tell them, Sometimes they push back and they're not nice about it. What, what's the solution here? I mean, is this is this uh, something where you, you engage with uh, somebody who does threat intelligence to keep an eye on the dark web for you? I think that's a component of it. I think having relationships with law enforcement in your community, with intel agencies, if you're an organization kind of the right size, and being willing to share threat data bi-directionally is key. If you have those relationships, it's the I know a guy network or I know a gal network that's going to really save the day. But if you don't know anybody, nobody's going to call. I'll give you an example, Dave. We had a, a situation where uh, somebody called me up and it was a situation at a hospital. And they's like, hey, look, I don't know anybody there. You guys are in lots of hospitals. Can you help me out? Because, you know, this thing's about to happen and it's not going to be good. I was like, absolutely. So, you know, we had contact information. We called up. We notified them. And then we get yelled at. We got yelled <laughs> at because, you know, you shouldn't be the one telling us. Why isn't so-and-so telling? Like, all right, well, sorry, I tried to do a good thing. I had another it's a, situation. Yeah, it's a no-win. It's a no-win. Or I had another situation where it was a university. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't know who to call. So we called their IT help desk. And they didn't know what to do with it. They transferred us to the public safety department where we spent like an hour on the phone talking with a campus safety officer about a ransomware incident that was about to happen. And, uh, you know, these are the types of challenges you get into. And why I think what you have to recognize as the potential receiver of this is to make sure, one, you've got the relationships, you've got somebody looking at your, you know, kind of your six on this, but also have a way to receive this data where somebody's going to be willing to call you. Yeah, it strikes me, too, that if you're getting a cold call from someone, uh, there's every reason to, to be wary that they might be a scammer. They might be a scammer. They might be the bad guy. Like, But here's the point. Have you trained the people on your help desk so that when they get this call at 2 o'clock in the morning, they actually know the questions to ask? doesn't mean they need to give something away to a scammer, but at the very least, they ought to have a script of what to ask. What's your name? What's your contact information? Who's your manager? What company are you with? I mean, really basic stuff of how to gather that information and then move it on up the flagpole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's, it's good advice for sure. All right, Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Don't forget to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Tomislav Perichin from Reversing Labs. We're discussing their research. Third-party code comes with some baggage. That's Research Saturday. Do check it out. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Guru Prakash, Justin Savy, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Balecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.